Good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us. My name is Mustafa Akyol, and I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity at the Cato Institute. And today, with two expert scholars, I'm here to discuss China's new authoritarian ideology. Why discuss this matter? Because China today is not merely a rising superpower, but also an authoritarian one, presenting an alternative and challenge to liberal democracy. Yet, what exactly is the ideology of this authoritarian model? Is it communism, as we know from the past century? Or is it a new synthesis with a strong dose of communism, nationalism, and statism? Uh, how does Mao and Carl Schmitt come together here? And how does it influence Chinese intellectuals? How does it play out regarding the brutal takeover of Hong Kong? and the almost genocidal persecution of the Uyghurs. I will ask these questions to two expert scholars who are following this issue very closely. Uh, Timothy Cheek, professor of Chinese research at the University of British Columbia. Uh, good morning, Timothy. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Uh, and Lynette Ong, associate professor of political science at the University of Toronto. Good morning, Lynette, as well. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, us. Mustafa, and good morning, everyone. Thank you. Uh, we want to have a lively discussion, leaving ample time for the questions and, uh, and the questions and comments from the audience, uh, which you may share through our website or social media. Now, uh, Lynette, uh, allow me to begin with you. There was an expectation two centuries ago, I mean, sorry, two decades ago, among Western intellectuals, uh, scholars, that China was economically opening up, so this would lead to the rise of a middle class, and therefore this would lead to democratization and liberalization, and things were looking more positive. Uh, although there were some scholars who raised concerns, one of them, I should honor him, you know, Roger Pilon, one of our colleagues at the Cato Institute, who was a bit more skeptical about China's direction back in 1997. Uh, but, but today we're at a different point. Uh, do you think that uh, expectation that China would democratize and liberalize was just uh, too optimistic and we are today on the track of a more permanent authoritarianism uh, in China, at least in the foreseeable future. What do you think about that? in the last 40 years, uh, when one of them, the first of them would be 1989. I think after Tiananmen incident domestically, that provoked a lot of internal reflection among the central leadership. And at the same time, you have the collapse of the Berlin Wall, uh, as well as the dissolution of the, the Soviet bloc. And I think that has prompted uh, the party to devote a lot of resources into studying the ideology and how do they then just uh, justify the ideology in order to strengthen uh, party's control on the society. And, and in 2001, a lot of Western democracies then welcomed China to join the WTO on the premise that uh, uh, trade, free trade will then prop open and make China more politically uh, liberal one, one day. I think that has proved to be a bit of a pipe dream. You have increased prosperity uh, in China, but then that also allows the government to increase its stranglehold on the society instead of uh, relaxing its control. But then looking forward, um, uh, one cannot rule out uh, radical changes. 
Um, I think largely because what happened in China in the last couple of years, there has been a lot of changes politically. And, you know, one could even speculate that they might be, uh, there might be implosion or uh, structural changes of some sort that we would see before we see any meaningful political liberalization. Okay, yeah, thank you for that. And uh, Tim, let me ask you the same question and also remind that, I mean, you are a a very close observer of China, not just the politics of it, but the ideology uh, of the regime. Uh, Your work was highlighted by the New York Times recently in an article that explains why Carl Schmitt is becoming popular in China, you know, the notorious ideologue which gave rise to Nazism uh, in in Germany in the 1930s. I recently read one of your very brilliant articles, Make China Marxist Again. So, but you're explaining that this is a different kind of Marxism. So, uh, first of all, do you think that this is authoritarian for the foreseeable future? Plus, what is the ideology of this, I mean, in your definition? Because that's uh, something you really have uh, watched very closely. Thank you. Thank you, Mustafa. Um, On your initial question on whether it was ill-conceived to think that uh, China would uh, democratize based on coming into the WTO and being part of the um, uh, international trade regime. Uh, I think there's two caveats. One is uh, in the West, I don't think my European colleagues were quite as hopeful of uh, the the wonderful birth of democracy in China based on um, uh, free markets. Um, The specialists that I talked to said, what we're looking for is China to be a responsible actor in the international regime, which includes the uh, market economy. Um, and we've gotten some of that, but we've gotten some uh, geopolitical actions that are not responsible and that are not good. On the other hand, inside China and on the ideological side, as we'll be talking about today, this authoritarianism, this ideological governance is not new, but under Jiang Zemin, it was very much looser. And inside China, I know of party um, intellectuals who thought there was a chance that there would be a more liberal version of Leninism. And that collapsed into the more authoritarian view that we're seeing now a year or two before Xi Jinping came to power at the end of the Hu Jintao administration. The long and the short of it is this ideology that we're all confronting is not new. It is ideological governance. It started with Sun Yat-sen in the 1920s. Chiang Kai-shek pushed it. If you read his uh, China's Destiny book from 1944, it's all in there. And Mao Zedong did it, and Deng Xiaoping did it, and now Xi Jinping is reasserting it. So for those who have been watching China for a long time, this is unfortunately not a surprise. Uh, So to follow up on that, where does... Where does Carl Schmitt come into the picture? Because that's really interesting for me. And there was a long article about that in the New York Times a while ago, because we know Maoism is the official ideology of China and still Maoism is there. And Mao is highly revered. And actually there's a rebirth of that. But then uh, there is this new popularity of Carl Schmitt. And of course, people who know the history of political thought will immediately recognize that's the immediate red flag because Carl Schmitt is the quintessential anti-liberal ideologue, you know, uh, and, like refuting every basic premise of uh, liberalism. 
uh, that is in the classical sense, like that is individual rights and state supremacy, uh, the, the perception of politics as between enemy and friend. Uh, so why did he become popular and did he become popular in China among Chinese intellectuals today? Lynette? For you two. Uh, first two, and then I'll go back to Lynette. Okie dokie. Just trying to be balanced. Uh, the um, Carl Schmitt has become popular amongst the establishment intellectuals in China who are trying to articulate the statist view and why it's a good thing to have party domination of society. We, you know, the, the party, we view party domination as a bad thing. The Communist Party views it as a good thing because they feel they're the only people with the scientific training and management skills to take care of the problems that China is facing today. That's very clear in the party uh, documents and in what Xi Jinping has said. The only change we've seen between 2005 and now is instead of a committee collective leadership, we've shifted back to the uh, uh, the dictator. The 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 and uh, the the real trick is to take someone as bland as Xi Jinping and present him as a charismatic leader uh, like uh, Deng Xiaoping and uh, Mao Zedong were. So Schmidt turns out to be a very useful tool for um, the ideological explanations that the Ch uh, China's uh, establishment intellectuals are making about why under current conditions you need party rule. And the reason you need Schmidt is you are no longer doing revolution. Okay, yeah. That's important. And uh, mm -hmm. Lynette, so on that question, let me come back to you now. Uh, sorry, I just had to follow up with Tim with the first uh, question. Um, what do you think? Like, how do you define the ruling or the official ideology? I mean, uh, party must rule over the society. There are enemies of the people and that there's a true people that the party represents. Is it still that Marxist blueprint? What's the role of nationalism? How do you see it? So, so this is how I look at ideology. Um, um, there's a documentary on on the Yangtze River, which was produced about ten years ago. I don't know whether you have you or team has actually watched it. There's this Chinese tour guide who's trying to ex to explain a group of Western tourists uh, what China is. So, so this is what he said. He said China signal. He said China is like a driver cruising along a highway signal left and then turned right right so if i could use that that carry that analogy that analogy one step further if people would go up to china and say that you know you have gone up the wrong lane china would then point to its signal and say but but you see i've actually signal left ideology to me you know served that purpose in china and of course unlike tim who has spent a lot of time studying that ideology um, I haven't and I looked at things from a slightly different perspective so my work is more more inductive where I go to the field and observe what's happening in China and trying to make to make sense out of it um, we know for a fact that every year the Chinese Communist Party invests a lot of resources provide funding to university scholars to get them to study ideology right and recently, there is a rise of a new, a new left, like what Tim has mentioned, a new left among the Chinese intellectuals, uh, really trying to propagate China dream, trying to uh, 
put forward a statist perspective of the CCP rule. And we see manifestation of that throughout Chinese societies as well as in Hong Kong and, and other places. But to me, ideology in China today serves as an almost an exposed justification for government policies. Um, of course, there are people who generally believe in that, but it's, it's, it's almost like an, af an afterthought uh, type, of, type of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Lynette. And let me turn to Tim at this point. Also, Tim, how does the current ideology in China perceive the global scene? I mean, typical of authoritarian ideologies is to say liberal democracy is just a Western product. Maybe it's good for the West, but but maybe it's not good anywhere because it's corrupt, because it is uh, not ordered, it's not disciplined. Our civilization is different. Our civilization is based on discipline and order and so on and so forth. Uh, and we're presenting a better model. Is there that sort of feeling in China that liberalism is a Western lie that has to be, you know, trashed, uh, I mean, put in strong terms? We knew that kind of narrative in, in the past from Japanese fascists and other, let's say, alternatives that come uh, to, uh, and, and I'm not saying China's at, at that sort of uh, aggressiveness today, but how does it play out? Because I, I hear a lot of when I read Chinese documents, this civilizational uh, assertion that liberalism is a Western thing and we don't have to buy into that. We need a more ordered society. And that's that's what, what it is. And it comes with a civilizational pride. Uh, do you see that sort of uh, narrative and feeling in China? I definitely do see the civilizational uh, argument coming. I think it's really important what Lynette said about ideology. And I think what we can do here is distinguish at minimum two uh, domains, the public or ordinary people and the leadership. And I think the description of um, ideology is a post hoc uh, kind of um, uh, explanation or excuse or, you know, uh, after the fact uh, is very much the experience of people on the ground. However, the leadership and the, the, uh, the people who are running the government, uh, they either believe or feel strongly they must act like they believe in this ideology and they are recasting it. And so the problem is that um, the Maoist uh, ideology doesn't fit anymore because uh, they're turning right, not turning left. Uh, and um, the uh, Jiang Zemin period was too loose and uh, did not, uh, it, it contributed, they feel contributed to two things, rampant corruption in the party and more challenges from society. And we, we, we talked about what is motivating uh, in this new period uh, for the Chinese leadership, we need to emphasize, and Lynette raised this, the collapse of the Soviet Union. This is a fixation of Xi Jinping. He says, essentially in Chinese, you know, the problem with the Soviet Union is no one had the cojones, you know, to stand up and fight back and save the party. And by God, I do. And so the civilizational debate reminds us of the what we would call the public transcript. We all know James C. Scott and the famous uh, hidden transcripts of, of uh, popular resistance. I've been studying the public transcripts, which is a chapter in that book people seem to ignore, which is that the leadership has to have its own uh, ideology to keep its 90 million uh, cadres um, feeling good about what they're doing. And that's what the push is. They're saying, we're not Western. It, 
it doesn't seem to be working as you suggested recently and we have our own way and here it is and the next thing we're going to get is not only do you have nationalism and statism added to the leninist mix you have confucianism and they're trying to recapture uh, imperial confucianism mm -hmm. and uh, it's interesting uh, so according to xi jinping um president of china Soviet Union collapsed not because of any inherent problem, but because the Communist Party was not bold enough to stand up against right. Western pressure or it wasn't bold enough to defend itself, not because dictatorship is inherently flawed. So I see that Correct. point, yeah, very, very clear. So Lynette, let me come back to you uh, and let me ask you this. Did the discussions about the coronavirus and how China handles this uh, add anything to this? Because I hear narratives that, you know, Western democracies cannot handle the health issues in the West, but now China is doing much better. Is it there right now? And the also ideology, and that's something we should maybe, we should be concerned about. Yes. Um, so, so I think in terms of ideology, there's another dimension of it, which is performance legitimacy. Um, there's, I, I think there's only so much that, uh, so, so I think the Chinese Communist Party stands on different legs and one of them is ideological legitimation and the other leg is performance legitimation. So here we are talking about um, delivering economic goods and economic prosperity to the hands of the people. And the other dimension of that is in terms of crisis management and we see this played out very well during the pandemic. Um, so even though China was the, out, the origins of the outbreak of the pandemic, subsequently what it has done from about January up to uh, April or, or May is, you know, building of hospitals in Wuhan, two hospitals being built within, within, within two weeks. They have managed to flatten the curve very, very quickly and keep the infection rate and death, and death rates, if you believe those numbers, under control much more effectively and efficiently than a lot of Western democracies uh, could do. And they only need to point to the United States under President Trump and the very high infection rate in the UK, including Canada, to draw that conclusion and to tell that message to the to the people. So so I think I think you know in terms of the pandemic has actually helped to boost uh, performance legitimacy uh, to the population and it has helped the party in that in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, I think the usual argument for dictatorship is that it delivers, right? I mean, trains run on time and things are more ordered and more successful, which is true for a while, but then things go out of control precisely because it's dictatorship. And, and by the way, regarding the coronavirus pandemic, one can say that China handled the, the uh, contagion in terms of disciplining the society and stopping the spread. But one can make the argument that the virus maybe would not explode in the first place if the Chinese doctors who were warning about it were not you know, blamed for treason and silenced and, uh, and the news were not suppressed in the first place. So if China had a free press and an independent judiciary. What do you think about that, Tim? I mean, does the coronavirus era uh, play into the Chinese uh, ideology and the authoritarian ideology? And uh, what are the flaws you see in that, if any? Yes, it absolutely does. Uh, you have to have your head in the sand not to wonder 
how come things are going so well in China in terms of the virus and uh, not in Europe and North America, not to mention Brazil and India? Uh, uh, the, uh, do keep in mind that Taiwan, another Chinese society under a separate administration, has done very well as well, uh, but it's an island. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of the uh, Communist Party ideology, yeah, uh, uh, Lynette's absolutely right that one of the two legs they stand on, one is ideological purity and appropriateness, and that we're a civilized nation, we have this great ideology, and the other is uh, uh, that we deliver. And uh, for the international um, uh, competition between the United States and China, or between uh, the Western liberal order and the whatever order the Belt and Road represents, um, this is a strong, uh, a strong recommendation from their point of view. I do take your point, though, that, and we'll see this, Boy, it looks great. And then you say, okay, so how about Xinjiang? How about Hong Kong? And then we begin to see the drawbacks of this particular approach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well, on that note, then let's start to discuss how about Xinjiang and how about Hong Kong and how the uh, Chinese official ideology play out uh, in these important uh, crises. I mean, uh, human rights crises. Uh, Lynette, what do you think? Let's begin with Hong Kong, if you will, something you've followed very closely. Like, how does the takeover of Hong Kong, which has been very concerning from a lot of people in the West and observing human, because Hong Kong has been a very free uh, part of the world. Uh, in our Human Freedom Index that Cato Institute and partners publish every year, Hong Kong is generally at the top, you know, one of the top countries. But Hong Kong is now uh, a part of mainland China, basically. How does it play out? Like, is this a conquest that now the Chinese uh, government is proud of? And is it seen as totally justified? Is there any discussion about Hong Kong? Did it add to the ideology? Right. Uh, that's a great, great question. Um, so I'll offer two perspectives. One perspective is um, from someone who study, you know, protests. Um, I think, I think, China decided to crack down on Hong Kong because uh, protests got, got violent. So Hong Kong is not immune to protests. In fact, a couple of years ago, five years ago, the umbrella movement attracted even more participants in terms of mass mobilization. But I think what is different from the protests in last, last summer is the protests got, got violent, turned violent, and at times it even turned into a riot. So the dimension of, of a riot is, is that the government then loses control over the situation. And we could see similar situation when it played out in mainland China. That often justifies very harsh crackdown on the part of Chinese police and even sometimes the paramilitary or the Wujing. Um, and then subsequently, we see the introduction of the national security law, which really trying to exert uh, CCP's control over all dimensions of, of Hong Kong society. Um, the other perspective I, I would offer is that from an ideological perspective, uh, you have you know, new, new, new left scholars, Jiang Zigong and, and so on, uh, people who believe in kind of status perspective, they would say that you know, this is a time for Beijing to assert control because you know, political sovereignty so they see the protesters as violent criminals, people as separatists, 
even though the practices have never said that we want to be separated from men in China. They want genuine autonomy and universal suffrage, but separatism has never entered into the, their lingo. But people in Beijing, as well as these new left in, intellectuals, see them as separatists, which then justifies you know, um, putting political sovereignty over the rule of law. We have to crack down on them. We have to clamp down on the protests uh, at the cost of, of of everything else. So, so again, you know, whether or not the intellectuals and the leadership, like like Tim mentioned, really believe in what they say and the ideology, that is definitely the justification that they are using to crack down on the protesters. Okay, well, that's an important point, I think, everywhere. I mean, if, if protests in any country, in any context, go violent, uh, turn into riots, they delegitimize the legitimate case. Uh, that they have and you know, they might be giving some uh, chance for the authoritarians who want to crack down on legitimate protests as well. I think we can observe that in, in different parts of the world. And Lynette, the, the separatism aspect you mentioned is also important. I'm, I'm from Turkey, I know, which is a country obsessed with separatism as well for uh, about a century. Uh, and, and Turkey has a Kurdish separatist movement which turned violent, which is a legitimate concern. But the way Turkey handled this problem has been uh, counterproductive in the sense that Turkey was concerned with Kurdish separatism. So what was the solution for decades? Banning the Kurdish language to Turkify the Kurds by force, which only made Kurdish separatists more uh, devoted you know, to their ideological cause and made everything worse. So I think, uh, I mean, that's, I think, important for Hong Kong, but also Xinjiang as well. I mean, right, I mean, China has concerns about Uyghur separatism, but by trying to erase Uyghur identity and, and, and Muslim religion, they're probably things making things worse. Let me take Tim's view on that, and I'll ask you about that, the Uyghur, specifically on the Uyghurs as well. I mean, Tim, uh, I mean, both on Hong Kong and Uyghurs, which one you want to take first? What do you think? Like, what is going on? How do we define, especially the, the persecution of the Uyghurs? And what does China want to achieve here? Like, make them all Han Chinese or just maybe Uyghurs, but who are not religious at all? Is that the ultimate goal? I mean, with all the camps and indoctrination, what is China's golden dream here? Well, I think you may have answered my question for me, because if the goal in the... Um, uh, re-education centers and with the uh, visits of party representatives into people's homes is to get people to speak Mandarin, eat pork, smoke cigarettes, and drink alcohol. Sure sounds like you're trying to turn them into Han. Uh, maybe that's not their, uh, their goal, but that's what it looks like. The situation in Xinjiang is fraught and awful. And uh, what is similar to Hong Kong is that the party has responded by over-responding to a limited uh, challenge. Uh, the, uh, as, as Lynette has pointed out, the, uh, the great majority of the Hong Kong people were not asking for separatism. They're asking for the autonomy that they were guaranteed under the basic law. And they, the Uyghurs and Kazakhs and other uh, Muslim people in uh, Xinjiang were responding uh, to uh, the promise of being an autonomous region uh, under the Chinese constitution and we're uh, responding to uh, the great influx of Han settlers. And so, you know, you, your comparison is a bit more like the Western United States in the second half of the 19th century. 
people who are there already aren't happy with the new people coming. And the party has done two things. Publicly, it has chosen to interpret acts of resistance and protests and a very limited number of terrorist acts, more on a police level than on a, a, a security level, with massive overreaction. And they uh, uh, have come in with the security state that we've all read about uh, and seen. Uh, for those who want uh, more details on both what the Chinese government is thinking and uh, what people are experiencing there, as well as what some outside observers think, uh, I work on the Xinjiang Documentation Project at the University of British Columbia at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. And I think your, your kind people will put up the website so I can advertise that. It is a, it's not an advocacy site. It's an academic site to give information. So it includes all the Chinese government white papers with little introductions on them so, and some of the videos from the uh, Propaganda Bureau so that you can see uh, what the Chinese government is think they're doing. And then you can also see what people themselves are experiencing and what others have said. And that's the second point, that the government here, the Chinese government is the Con Chinese Communist Party, effectively. And they are extending party notions of education and rectification to an entire body of people. And so they're, they're taking, uh, uh, people say, is Xi Jinping a new Mao Zedong? As I say, he's Maoist, but not Mao. You need to read Liu Xiaoqi's on the cultivation of a Communist Party member. That's exactly what they're doing to the people in Xinjiang, trying to cultivate them into what the party thinks is a good citizen. And it's a, it's a terrible thing to do. It's one thing for a party, but it's another thing to do it to a population. Yeah, I mean, cultivating people into something that the state has decided is the root of the greatest evils in, in modern history. Uh, so we're sad to see that again. Lynette, what do you think about especially the persecution of the Uyghurs? I mean, camps, uh, forced abortion. Some people call it almost genocidal because of the abortion aspect, forced abortion aspect. Uh, how does China justify this? Does the population know about this? Like, do the, the average Chinese know about, read about this in their newspapers? Uh, and also, I'm curious that China is taking great pains to make sure that it is not criticized by Muslim governments on this issue. Uh, I mean, I know, for example, in Turkey, Turkey has growing relations with China, economically fine, uh, but Chinese government officials and media have demanded from the Turkish officials that China should not be unfairly criticized in the Turkish media, which means China should not be criticized in the Turkish media, which has been the case. I mean, uh, in 90% of the media, which is, I can, I can say, today under government uh, tutelage somehow. Um, yeah, I mean, can you tell us how Beijing sees the persecution of the Uyghurs and what do they want to achieve? And do they think that ultimately the Muslim world will not care about this uh, and they will continue to have great relations with the Muslim countries? Well, unfortunately, the Muslim, the Muslim world, I think until recently, you will know you will know this well, has been relatively silent. I, I think the first country that actually made a statement was actually Malaysia, right? Followed by Turkey and maybe Indonesia very, very recently. So largely the Muslim world have been quiet because they have been, you know, they're in a relationship, they are in the, the, the recipient of uh, part of the Belt and Road in, initiatives and some of them are uh, receiving, you know, Chinese aid and, and, and Chinese investment. In, in, so in terms of how the Beijing leadership uh, sees the Xinjiang problem, um, 
there is recently a debate on Twitter between people who have studied Xinjiang for 30, 40 years and between people who study you know, domestic security and terrorism in in uh, in China, they are like talking past past is talking past each other. People who have studied Xinjiang and culture and anthropology for a long time, they see this as uh, an act of ethno-nationalism. So what Tim uh, talked about earlier, trying to assert Han Hanness and uh, CCP power into the territory, but people who study domestic security and uh, protests and repression in China see this as a response of the CCP to a terrorist act that went on in Kunming several years ago. But to me, that is a little bit like what happened after 9-11. You have US in invasion of Afghanistan and, and, and what they did in other parts of the world is almost an overreaction, very much an overreaction of, of what they see as a as terrorist issue. And we know that you know, by building concentration camps and what they did to women in Xinjiang, it, it doesn't actually help to solve the problem, right? So you have very moderate uh, Xinjiang intellectuals. Um, what's his name? Um, Ilam Ilam Toti, who has, yeah, who has been thrown into jail many years ago. And, and what he said was something like, we, we, we need to listen to moderate voices of Xinjiang population out, out there. Because once you silence the moderate voices, the radical voices want to be heard, and I and I think the terrorism act is an is a direct result of silencing the moderate voices, and hence you get radical uh, terrorism. Yeah, I mean it's the same story. I mean, the more authoritarian you are, the more counterproductive you are, and actually you just make the threat you are fighting bigger and bigger, which which we have seen in Western foreign policy sometimes towards the Middle East. Western dictatorships towards uh, violent groups in their own societies, and now we're seeing in China. Um, now we will. We have also a lot of questions. I want to get to them uh, as well. People are asking very interesting questions through online. But, but before that, let's also speak about what the Western policy should be regarding China. It's it's an authoritarian state. It is assertive. Uh, it is presenting an alternative model that is liberal alternative to liberal democracy, which is a concern for human freedom and human rights everywhere. Uh, plus, it is selling this model to uh, countries that are actually interested in this model. Uh, and with the takeover of Hong Kong, China is becoming more assertive. But how should the West respond? Because we know any response can be counterproductive, as we we're describing uh, regarding the uh, China's response to terrorism, uh, minor acts of terrorism in, in Xinjiang. The West policy, the Western policy, the policy of the United States should not be counterproductive as well. So in that sense, what, what is the right way? Tim, let me begin with you, if you will. What would you advise? I mean, if, if a government, uh, if the U.S. government or Canadian government, you know, uh, consults you on this, which I think they should, uh, what, what would you tell them? I think three things. Uh, the, the, first of all, we have to engage China but it has to be a practical and pragmatic engagement that recognizes that the Chinese government is a Leninist regime and does not play by our rules. So how do you play, if you have to play with a, another team, against another team or with another team, and they don't play by the rules, what do you do? The second thing is multilateral cooperation. 
uh, the liberal countries need to get together, need to work together much more closely. Uh, China has uh, demonstrated uh, unequivocally uh, a, a diplomacy of punishment. Uh, they've been extended it to Canada. They've done it before to Sweden and to uh, Norway and other uh, South Korea and others. And uh, of course, Taiwan's getting it big time. So the, there needs to be, we've all heard about the united front and sharp power from China. So I, I tell my government colleagues, we need to have a united front of liberal societies uh, to stand up with each other when one of us gets picked on by China and to build positive things that we can do that uh, leave us less subject to such uh, bullying diplomacy. And the final thing is that we have to improve our China skills. And so you need more people with Chinese language, research, all those things. I'm, I'm, now, I'm, now I'm huckstering for the students from our policy school and, uh, and even the monk uh, school uh, and other uh, fine uh, institutions in the United States and Europe. Uh, you need much, we, the number of people in the Chinese government who speak English, Zhang Shikong, who Lynette mentioned, is, uh, uh, publishes in English, he knows everything about it. He knows, he reads the Schmidt directly, right? How many of our policy people do that? So we're flying blind until we get back and build up our China skills. Yeah, that's very, very good. Thank you, Tim. And Lynette, what would you say uh, on the same matter? Like, what would be the some of the highlights for Western governments to keep in mind regarding China? Well, you know, Tim has, you know, Tim has stolen all my points. Um, he has said, you know, everything that I wanted to say. But, you know, so I agree on multilateral cooperation. I agree on standing up to you know western you know liberal liberal principle and we have to differentiate it from the values that china stands for today which is different from it, it was like 40 years ago um i guess i guess this question becomes uh, more more salient today and in the last couple of years because of uh, trump presidency and i'm saying this uh, across the border you know from from Toronto. And I think any meaningful Western alliance um, uh, doesn't really work and not very meaningful without, without US leadership. There is only so much that, you know, EU is not a united entity. Uh, many of them have very deep engagement and commercial interests with China, and they do not want to be seen as antagonistic uh, towards towards China. And and there's so much. There's only so much that you know middle power. I don't really like like the term. There's only so much that middle power could actually do without U.S. leadership. Um, so all eyes to me, all eyes is on no, on November. Um, I think if if uh, Biden wins the presidency, we are likely to see a more effective approach. Um, you know, the US-China competition, the rivalry will continue. And I think that's unfortunate. Um, a, lot of it will, a lot of us will be pulled into, you know, which, which side do you, do you stand on? But I, I think under Biden, we will see a more coherent, uh, less of a knee-jerk reaction, more effective front against China. And I think that is welcoming as well as very important. So actually, actually Chinese people, Chinese leadership uh, doesn't want, uh, really, really want Trump to win the presidency because they see continue of, of US decline, disunity among Western alliance under Trump. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's interesting. It's uh, of course important that the U.S. Uh, keeps its alliance uh, with other liberal democracies in the world and do not give any credit to the authoritarian regimes in the world. Uh, now, having mentioned Canada and China today, it was on the news that the Chinese envoy to Canada threatened actually Canada, saying that if democracy activists from Hong Kong are welcomed in uh, Canada, which he defined as violent criminals, the health and safety of 3,000 Canadians who live in uh, China might be, you know, jeopardized. So that's pretty much of a threat, like a rogue uh, state threat to a liberal democratic country like Canada, which upholds human rights. And I think other countries which are liberal democratic and believe in human rights should support Canada uh, on this. Um, now, uh, thank you so much. I mean, this is a great discussion. We're going on with some of the questions and uh, we have many questions that came from uh, people who are watching us. Uh, one of them is my colleague, Roger Pilon, whose article I uh, mentioned in the beginning of this uh, panel. Uh, he's a Cato Institute senior fellow. He's asking, would you please comment on the public diplomacy efforts of the CCP, such as the Confucius Institutes in American universities in legitimizing the Chinese system and the government's activities. Uh, and connected to this one could, there are there have been other questions about whether China is monitoring US universities, discussions there. Sometimes students who are from China are a little bit concerned about what they say in the campus on America might be a problem for them back at home. Uh, I mean, if you combine these two things, what would you like to say? I mean, which one of would you like to pick? Uh, Uh, yeah, so I'll, so I'll offer my perspective, and then you know Tim 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 could uh, jump in. Um, I'm sure he 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 knows about the Confucius Institute very very well. My sense is how Confucius Institutes work in different universities are actually quite different. Some of them operate on the language program uh, funded by the Han the Han Ban, which is you know indirectly linked to the Chinese government. There, there's nothing more than that. But in other institutions, uh, they are a little bit more interventionist. They want certain programs and and would prevent the universities from inviting certain certain speakers who adopt an anti-CCP position. So it's really a mixed bag of 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 uh, of of activities that Hanbang does and 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 is activities in 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 different parts of uh, Western societies, but I think overall it is meant to be a soft power instrument to shore up uh, CCP's legitimacy and popularity in in I uh, know outside outside China, um, but it has really not been that successful, right? Um, except in some countries, some African countries, where we have seen people singing red songs. Um, at least I've seen clips of that. But, but I think by and large, you know, in Canada, there's a, can there's a cancellation of a bunch of Confucius Institute because of a range of problems, which I know, you know, Tim knows about. So, I, so, so there's a lot of effort, but I think there's also been a lot of pushback. And overall, I think the Chinese government failed in the PR effort. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. what would you think on the same matter? Well, I, I agree with Lynette, and, and it was her turn to, to, to steal my points. The, uh, which, those were her own thoughts, but we do agree on these. 
And I, uh, I think what we're all seeing is um, something that uh, uh, Larry Diamond and Orville Schell, uh, Larry Diamond at the uh, Hoover Institution, Orville Schell at the Asia Society, uh, had a two-year-long project of consulting with folks on Chinese sharp power, which is this um, uh, elbow-in-the-eye form of uh, public diplomacy. The important thing here is to distinguish a number of the things that the Chinese government have been doing are normal public diplomacy, but some are not. And so the key is to filter out the stuff that is coercive, uh, uh, corrupting, and covert. And uh, you go after those things, and that's why we have security services, uh, CSIS, FBI, whatever. But I think that um, the United States and uh, Canada have um, um, cultural centers in other countries uh, that are, you know, basically run by the, by the governments, but at arm's length. Um, and so the problem for the Chinese is that, uh, as Lynette pointed out, some of the Confucius Institutes are quite mild, some are not. You can take that a step further. When it's Stanford University, they just give you the money because they want the cultural prestige of having a Confucius Institute at Stanford. But if you're a state university, uh, not even the core state university in one of the Midwestern states, the contract is just shocking. And they're extending uh, party control quite directly. So that's what I meant by practical and pragmatic engagement. Practical engagement would not allow the second thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you very much. Now we have another question by Robert Perry. He's asking, uh, do you believe China will invade Taiwan before or after presidential election? Or the, is the current round of sword rattling designed to pressure Taiwan, but not provoke the United States? Yeah, what, how does look China, I mean, probably not an invasion, but what do you think about how China will approach Taiwan in the near future? Now you get to watch two professors saying, after you, after you. <laughs> uh, I, 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 sure, I sure hope they don't invade anytime. And uh, nobody can foretell the future, or at least we can't. But um, I think the danger is very high. I think Xi Jinping mm -hmm. is staking a lot of reputation on this. And the, I think the harshness with which they've struck down on Hong Kong has impressed me. Okay. Wow. That's Yeah. No, no, I, I, I agree with that. Um, and just a couple of days ago, President Xi Jinping, you know, said to the military, prepare for a war, right? And that sort of, we hear that sort of statement being uttered increasingly in the, in the last couple of years. Um, mm -hmm. But I think, you know, overall, the, tai the Taiwan issue is like the nuclear option for North, for North Korea. Um, it's used to, you use that to dangle in, in people's eyes and then, see there's this option that I'm going to exercise, you better give me this, you better give me that. But having said that, I, I, I do agree that, you know, the, the likelihood of uh, something happened to Taiwan has increased over the last couple of years. But by nature, that is meant to be a deterrent type of strategy. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's going to take diplomacy to avoid killing. Uh, and and do you think U.S. policy will influence how China behaves regarding Taiwan? I mean, is U.S. defense of Taiwan important here? Obviously, 
Yes, you know, as you know, there's a Taiwan there's a Taiwan Relations Act that bind U.S. Congress to to help Taiwan to be on Taiwan's side should something happen, should the CCP invade Taiwan. But just but just the other day, you know, I heard some military analysts uh, saying that uh, the military expenditures in Taiwan has come down quite dramatically over the last decade. So even they themselves do not think that this is a priority. And then you turn that question around to US policymakers. If Taiwan doesn't see military expenditures as a priority, why should we come to your aid should something happen to you, right? Um, so there's very interesting dynamics going 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 on. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. That needs to be closely followed. Um, and we have a question from Paul Chatton. Chatham from New Jersey. He asks, do you think it would be productive to engage Chinese citizens directly about pursuing basic liberal freedoms we enjoy to some extent in Western democracies? Could a freedom movement gain traction? Like, uh, is there any grounds for in China to have another movement like a Tiananmen? Hopefully not disastrous in that sense, but like uh, in Iran, there is a green movement, you know, in authoritarian regimes, there is this this affection in society and which has a potential of changing some things in society. Do you see that in China or a lot of people are just silent or just, you know, uh, happy with the uh, new authoritarian narrative? Is there a strong current of liberal potential in society? There oh, are Chinese. Saying? Thank you. There are Chinese liberals. Uh, but they're not exactly like Western liberals, and they are, there's a range of them. And uh, fortunately, if you want to, uh, 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 the gentleman in New Jersey, if he would like to engage some of those liberals, at least understand what they're saying in some detail, uh, in other words, reading English translations of what they write. Uh, there's a wonderful website called Reading the China Dream that is uh, run by David Owenby in Montreal and uh, has um, scores of these fine essays, New Left, New Confucian, Neo-Authoritarian, Liberal, a range of Chinese intellectuals. The, in India, we'd call them the chattering classes. You know, they, uh, and some of them are inside the Beijing Beltway and some are further afield. Um, and so that's where I think you can see any kind of uh, liberal movement. In fact, liberalism, as you know, is currently in the poo again uh, in in China. And Mao criticized liberalism because it sounds like it sounds like social autism. You know that you know it means you know, it means splitism. It's personal splitism. So we have to be careful about our phraseology, our kifa. And I think if you talk about constitutionalism, if you talk about community uh, rights, if you talk about social services, there's lots of ways to talk to Chinese that will not get them into trouble. And I think that would be congenial to the values we hold dear. So start with reading some of the translations and reach out. Okay, great. And Lynette, do you want to add something on that? Yeah, no. So, so to address your earlier question, the likelihood of a massive uprising in China, like Tiananmen, is close to zero. In fact, I think negative because the repressive uh, machinery has been so well developed since 1989 that they would likely nipped any sort of large-scale collective action in the in the butt before they erupt. So no upscale, no large-scale uprising. Okay, yeah. 
that's that's what Uyghurs are witnessing and experiencing, right? With that machinery, the brutality of the machinery. Now, here's a question from, uh, excuse my Chinese, Qing Yunli, uh, a visiting scholar from the George Washington University. And is that he or she, again, pardon me, uh, he or she asks, to uh, Tim, for you, Professor Cheek, under China's ideology, China is rising rapidly, while Western countries somehow show the decline of Western democracy. Do you think Chinese ideology is increasingly appealing to Western society? Like, this turns it the other way around. Like, is it, it's not yeah. whether China was liberalized, but whether the, the brilliant success of China <laughs> will be appealing to other societies. I mean, before giving that to you, Tim, I should just say uh, myself, I don't know whether it will be appealing to Western societies, and West is a big and complicated place, by the way, but it is certainly appealing to some other countries in the world. I see a lot of uh, yearnings in Turkey towards something like China, uh, and some of the people who are in power or close to power. Uh, it shows that you can be technologically efficient, you can have a high-tech society without all the hassle of uh, a free society and all the democratic, uh, democratic uh, rights. And people in power can enjoy, you know, being efficient, successful and being in power forever, you know, without any threats. So I do see the appeal of China to, let's say, non-Western societies, which are still seeking their way in which there are some authoritarian currents. But even in the West, I mean, what do you think uh, regarding that? Thank you. I think it's an entirely fair question. And uh, Mustafa, I think you were right to point out that it turns the tables. And if a fair and, and equal engagement between Chinese civilization and other civilizations is going to happen, we have to do questions like that. They have to get flipped around. It's not like when will you become like us? What's the problem, right? They, we might both change. And so I would say that the promise of the new ideology looks beautiful. The problem is the practice. And I think, uh, uh, well, people in, in Europe and, and North America have gotten a lot of anti-communist um, messages, so it would be very difficult um, to just go fast. But you look at it, and this, it sounds great. You said it's a meritocracy. It's, um, it's efficient. They actually believe in science. They believe in China. It's climate change. Like, you know, it's not like it's not an argument in China. You know, it's not, and, uh, and, but when you look at what happens in Hong Kong, when you look at what happens in Xinjiang, and when you look at China bullying other countries, that undercuts that ideology. Yeah, uh, I mean, authoritarian ideologies always sound great on paper, right? Efficiency, success, uh, and so on and so forth. Problems and disasters happen when you implement them. Uh, uh, now, we have a question from Alexei Sobchenko. He asks, return to communist ideology will definitely increase government intervention in Chinese economy. Will it hurt China's economic growth? Uh, Lynette, what do you think about that? Or Tim, sure, but I asked. Uh, so, so, so the, quest, the question is, increased government intervention, would that improve economic growth? No, it, it will be increased. I mean, if this is a increase in the authoritarian regime, it will probably have more intervention in the economy. Will this be bad for China's economy? Or are they yes. somehow managing? 
Right. So, you know, um, I think one of the largest bottlenecks in terms of economic reform in China in the last 20 years is stagnation in in shrinking the size of state-owned enterprises, right? The SOE sector, the state, the government, the party doesn't want to let it go, particularly under Xi Jinping. I mean, Zhu, Rong, Zhu Rongji, which is the premier under Jiang Zemin, was, uh, was this iron, iron prime minister who was very good at saying no to people. But I think since Zhu Rongji, no one has been able really to stand up to the interest, vested interest of the SOE sector in China. And, and that means, you know, diversion of resources at the expense of private sector growth. Um, for a long time, private sector, private companies are not able to get financial resources, they cannot get loans, cannot get working capital. A lot of them rely on their personal savings, which has been a major in impediment on, uh, on Chinese economic growth. Um, there's a Chinese term called 国境民退. So when you have this, uh, you know, this state trying to advance itself in the economy, in the society, Nat naturally, the society need to step, take a step back backward, um, and that happens in the political sphere as well as in economic spheres, as well in terms of allocation of economic resources. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What do you think about that, Tim? I know we're running out of time, but the short version is that uh, it, I'm less concerned about state-owned industries and more concerned about uh, party interference. And Zhu Rongji, who Lynette rightly brings up from the 90s, he was confident that the Communist Party's economic policies would work. The, the, the sort of mm, mm, brittle assertion that you must have a party commissar in every uh, board and, and, and company reflects, I think, an anxiety and insecurity underneath the China dream. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, we have other questions. I mean, I doubt we will have time for all of them. There are many questions. Uh, there is one uh, person who's asking about whether the parallels between, is there any parallels between the no dark corner policy implemented in China, which means their all data is, you know, technologically followed by the government, individuals are traced, whether this can be repeated in America or in other Western democracies. I asked this question to Matthew Feeney, my colleague at the Cato Institute, who's an expert on technology and, and freedom. And uh, his take was that uh, in, in, in government surveillance and you know government control is a concern everywhere in the world. But at least in countries like America, in liberal democracies, you have an independent judiciary and elected officials and you have diffusion of power, which makes it look, uh, relatively less concerning uh, than, than, than the case in China. But I'm not, uh, I'll be not be surprised if China, you know, and it does already, you know, exports its authoritarian products about monitoring the citizens and tracing them to other authoritarian regimes in the world, uh, which means that we should keep China, uh, I mean, keep following China closely. And thanks to you, Tim and Lynette, uh, for helping us today to get a better understanding. I would, uh, we're coming to the end of our panel. Uh, I mean, I would encourage everyone to read your articles and your work on this, and uh, we will be posting some of them online. But you helped us, really. Uh, and thanks to everybody who joined us. Sorry we didn't have time for every question, but you can still reach our, uh, reach our scholars online later. Uh, the China story reminds us that human freedom is precious and fragile everywhere in the West and in the East. 
uh, and there is no end of democracy, uh, sorry, end of history that we can say, yes, liberal democracy has become established in the world. Quite the contrary, it must be protected. Uh, and China is a good reason uh, to be concerned about this. Thank you for joining us today. Keep following us at the Cato Institute.